It's Alex, and I know you didn't expect me to be here, but I'm filling in. I'm doing an extra 60 minutes. So you get even more Alex in your ears. You get Alex in your inbox. You get Alex in your ears. You get Alex on your Twitter. Alex in your workplace. I'm everywhere. I can't be stopped. You just have to listen. So we're going to talk about snow and education and wrongness. Here goes. Right. Well, let it never be said that I'm not cultured and let it never be said that I don't know how to, you know, woo listeners with culture. And I'm going to start off actually with a poem that I really, really love. And the reason I'm going to start with this poem is because every time I read it, it does something else. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about poetry is there are these tiny little nuggets of language but every time you read it and it's a new poem at least that's the best ones and the poem i'm going to read is snow by louis mcneese and it goes like this the room was suddenly rich and the great bay window was spawning snow and pink roses against it soundlessly collateral and incompatible World is suddener than we fancy it. World is crazier and more of it than we think. Incorrigibly plural. I peel and portion a tangerine and spit the pips and feel the drunkenness of things being various. And the fire flames with a bubbling sound for world is more spiteful and gay than one supposes, on the tongue, on the eyes, on the ears, in the palm of one's hands. There is more than glass between the snow and the huge roses. So, what I picked this poem, um, I think for me, the line that stuck out this time, and there's always a different line that stands out, for me with this poem, but the one that stands out is um, soundlessly collateral and incompatible. And I think before when I've read this poem, I've, I've glossed over the word collateral, but here I think it means descended from the same stock, but of a different line. And I think in this case, what's happening is McNeese is getting us to understand that everything's connected. Everything comes from this same root. We're all kind of parts of creation, as it were. Although I know creation implies a creator, but let's let's use the word creation. And yet, what we experience is, as he says at the end of the second stanza, the drunkenness of things being various. And so this poem for me is all about the overwhelming feeling of being alive and in a moment realising just how much there is that is so beyond our understanding. And at the end, you know, there is more than glass between the snow and the huge roses. And yet, if you just take a glance, you know, you've got 
roses on one side of the window, the snow on the other side, and all there seems to be between them is glass. But there's so much stuff that's unseeable, that's unknowable about being alive. And that is really what's been on my mind recently. This episode is going to be about um, the future of education, except it's not really because we don't know what that's going to be. And to be honest with you, despite my best efforts, and I've been quite frustrated this last week, I've been really trying to figure out what education could look like, might look like in the future. And everywhere I look, I just keep coming up, not blank exactly, but I keep I keep coming across vagueness. I just don't feel like I'm getting anywhere. Um, next week, I have got the wonderful Dr. K. Sidebottom, who really specialises in post-humanism in terms of education, and I'm hoping she can really um, help me. Uh, Chris Fowles in the chat um, just said, great poem, one of the fine McNeese's finest. Echoes of E. Cummings, agreed. I love E. Cummings, yeah. The last line is brilliant. It's, it's such a fantastic poem, isn't it? You know, 12 lines of absolute deliciousness. Thank you, Chris. And please do get involved. I can see we've got six people in. Um, it's really lovely to see, I'll say long-time listeners of the show. This is show number four. It's really nice to see um, people repeatedly turning up. I am cultivating my little niche. So it's really nice to see everybody there. Um, if you're tuning in for the first time, hello. Um, and please do share it on Twitter. Let them know the show's on now. We've got Toby Payne Cook in the house. Uh, Toby has got his show on at 11 with the inimitable um, Ed Finch. They will be talking about. Toby, what are you talking about later on? Just pop it in the chat. Yep, and Carolina's there as well. We've got to be careful because this will turn into Badger Ed if we're not careful. Um, so no, Carolina, she won't, she won't do that to us. But um, <laughs> Carolina, the benevolent Badger. Um, so, yeah, um, so Toby's going to be on later on after me. We've had Nathan uh, Gim before me do um, tune into his show beforehand. And please do promote the show as well on um, on Twitter if you can. Please do, um, you know, use my Twitter handle at Curtain Sleep. Um, and please do use the uh, Twitter handle for Teachers Talk Radio at TTR 2022. And to our eminent founder, um, Tom Rogers. Hello, Tom. Nice to see you in here. Um, I'm just plugging Teachers Talk Radio as you come in, which is nice for you to see me doing that. Now, so I'm going to be talking today then about the future of education. And I um, <laughs> it was, wasn't it, Tom? And it was completely coincidental. Um, so I'm really been trying to, to figure out what education will look like in the future and what it should look like and what we should be doing as teachers. But I'm going to need your help. Um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, gentlemen, I'm going to need you to tell me it's not Jesus this time. Well, you never know. The future of education might be Jesus. What if he comes back and he goes, right, let's get rid of standardised assessment, AFL nonsense. Let's have transubstantiation, you know, so you never know what Jesus would get up to if he turned up. He might have a look around and go, this is brilliant. The trads were right. It's unlikely he'll say that, although, you know, this could be a whole other debate. Would Jesus be a prog or a trad? I know what you're thinking, Carolina. He'd be a badger. He'd be a bat, would he, Toby? Referring to my answer to your question earlier. Um, he'd be a badger. Do you reckon? Because he, he was all about sowing sort of uh, mischief, wasn't he, Jesus? I never thought I'd say that Jesus was mischievous, but he was. He always annoyed the Pharisees, didn't he? You know, he always told people what was what. He always used to play little word games, parables. This is very Badger Ed. So I think we're saying that if Jesus came back, 
he'd have a badger emoji after his name and you can pass that on to uh, the rest of badger ed as the badger ed representative um carolina know about what ed and i are talking about later oh right sorry yes influential inspirational people in our adult lives career profession etc oh yes because of course i talked about this with you didn't i toby when i when i popped up and i said that jesus was um was there and i'm delighted to say that um our guest um hugh ogilvy is in the studio as well i'll be getting him to call in soon once i've um rambled on a bit i'll have hugh call in in a few minutes so what have i been thinking about well i've been thinking about um i've been thinking about analogies actually so things that i got distracted by um I've been thinking about analogies an awful lot and the way we make meaning in the world. And this has been because I watched a wonderful video from um, Douglas Hofstadter, and he claims that analogy is the core of our cognition. All of our experience in terms of how we think is all about analogy. We cannot learn anything unless we relate it to something else. And this really got me thinking about the nature of teaching. At its heart, with teaching, we have to say to a person, this thing that you don't know yet is a bit like this thing that you do know, but here's how it's different. And so it's a really bizarre state of affairs. And I'm not certain about a lot of what makes teaching teaching and what we should be doing, but I do think the core of it might be um, analogy. But other than that, I really don't know. I really don't know what's between the snow and the huge roses. All of that invisible stuff. I don't know what it is. So I would love to see throughout the show, and me and Hugh are going to need your help. I would love to get your perspective, people in the chat, all eight of you. Well, seven of you, because Hugh's going to be talking. Um, I want to know what you think the future of education should look like and i want to see you being as as playful and as controversial and as mad with it as possible all right um I and mean, i'm going to take a lot of what you say this week and i'm going to put some of this stuff to um case side bottom as well and she'll probably tell us that we're all wrong because she's very very clever so before i do get hugh though i'm going to talk about something else that's going to tie in um, so the other problem, I think, in terms of why I don't know what the future of education is going to be like, and it's to do with bats. And I'm sure, Toby, this will appeal to you quite a lot, as you are, hashtag the original edgy bat. Now, I've been reading a, a paper by uh, Thomas Nagel um, from the 70s, 76, I think, and it's called, um, well, it's called, ah, what is it like to be a bat? And Nagel says... I will never know. We will never know what it's like to be a bat. We can guess. We can pretend to be bats. We could put on a bat costume and hang upside down in our wardrobes. It's an odd conversation to have with the person you live with. But you could do that. You know, you could go and live with bats. You could be Batman. But you will never know what a bat feels like when it's a bat. And a bit like with Magnesis poem, you know, the idea of being collateral, you know, we, defend, we descended from the same root, but we are different. We split. That's with us and bats. We have a lot in common with bats. You know, if you think about the amount of DNA we share, if you think about all the different organs we have, we, with all the different biological factors, we're quite similar. And yet they experience the world in such different ways. We're never going to know what it means to use sonar or what it feels like. We can understand it on a technical level. 
feeling it, being it, that, that's beyond us. And it always will be by the looks of things. Now, but it's not just about bats. I started to extend this and I asked myself, well, is this true of human beings? And it is true of human beings. I don't know what it's like to be Carolina or Tom or Toby or Hugh. They can tell me. I mean, we've got that shared language, so it's easier for me to talk to Toby than it is for me to talk to a real bat. But I am a real bat. System. The same applies to other people's experiences we haven't had. Exactly, Carolina. And this is what I've started to think. This is the problem with empathy. You know, we're constantly told to be empathetic. But let's think about what we're doing cognitively when we're being empathetic. What we're doing is we are wearing somebody's emotional state as an outfit. And then we're just feeling sorry for ourselves. We're going, I imagine what it must be like for you to be going through that. But you're actually just imagining yourself. So when you feel empathy, really feeling it towards yourself, because what else are you supposed to get? Even if we've had the same experience doesn't mean we've felt the same. Absolutely, Lucy. And if we think about the subjectivity of memory, about how our brain lies to us all the time, thinks it's being helpful, filling in the gaps, we are in terrifyingly murky waters, you know, in terms of epistemology. We don't know what we're supposed to know. We don't even know what we don't know. You know, we have no idea what it's like to be a bat or a Martian or Hugh Ogilvy. And on that note, I would invite um, Hugh to call in. Actually, I'd really love it, Hugh, if you could give us a call um, and we'll get chatting. And I'm going to sort of work through my notes, but with you at my side, Hugh wants to call in. I will invite him to be a speaker. Right, so hopefully he should appear in just a moment. Hugh, good evening. Can you hear me? Uh, yeah, can you hear me? Hugh, I can hear you. Hopefully we can all hear Hugh. Tom, we can hear very Hugh, clear. can't we? It's very clear. Yeah, it's it feels clear. clear. Well, it says you know, I should mute myself one. or something, but I'm a bit confused, but as long as you can hear me. Oh, I can hear oh, you. Oh, I can hear you. So, Brilliant. So how's your parents' evening gone? Um, well, you, you kind of run out of breath, don't you? You talk and talk and you, you, you try and say the same thing in different ways, using different words. I don't mean that with any disrespect to any student. And because we do it um, remotely now, we have five minutes. And of course, if someone drops out, then you lose a bit of time. But I had a few gaps. But even with the gaps, you end up just rushing through it all. But yeah, it's, it's, um, it's an experience and it tires you out. But... <laughs> It's, I think it's worthwhile. I think it's worthwhile. I mean, we, we just went over what the, how the mocks had gone and talking about you know the immediate future and how they've improved and so on and so on. And then you have to mm. kind of give the ease of, well, they're not really making much effort and that's a bit of a problem, but you have to sometimes be a bit, um, I don't know, honest about it, you know? It's tricky, isn't it? Because I find yeah. it really hard to look a parent in the eye and say, your child is terrible, even in a, in a nice softened sort of way. I really find that hard. And I see the child looking at me as well. And I think, and even if that child is a pain, I'm thinking, what's well, a human being over there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Am I going to send them home to get told off? And I hold their fate in my hands like a tiny bird. Yeah. And Carolina had parents evening as well. Um, so he, this is interesting because I'm not sure where I stand on parents evenings because we have our stock phrases, don't we? Yeah. What's your kind of go-to phrase that you use when a child's um, been doing well? When they're doing well, I, I usually comment more upon how they are within the classroom. So okay. how they contribute, um, their 
there. I mean, well, with year 11, I've got a year 11 group who barely talk. So mm. uh, I find that my voice is dominant within the room. But, mm. um, you know, when they do talk, I kind of say a little prayer to, to whoever. Um, and, you know, there are some lovely contributions, but I try and just keep the pace up most of the time just to get them doing things. But actually, they work really hard. So I often talk about how well they're working, how well they've progressed since last time. And then I'm, I might make a personal comment about something they've said or done, uh, a particular piece of writing that they've written. And then I'll try and get some kind of advice because parents often say, what can we do to help? And I find it quite difficult with students who are already predicted a seven or an eight or even a nine to say, well, what can you do? So I say, well, what I'd said tonight to a few students, parents was, uh, when you're picking a quotation from a piece of text or whatever, then just um, just think about it, write about it, then write some more about it and write a bit more, but make it original so that when an examiner sees it, their eyebrows are raised and they go, oh, I like that. That's interesting. That's different. Mm. And that's the kind of thing. So that's why I said that to at least half a dozen students. And then to the ones who have not been doing so well, I said, you need a revision guide. You need to know, you need to have knowledge about the text. That's what I keep going about. Facts. You know the facts of the text, so you feel confident then about writing to, to, for writing about it. But a lot of the problems in the exams is the students run out of time, or they don't write enough, or they answer the wrong question, and you know those sort of things. But okay. So there's two things you've mentioned actually that I really wanted to bring up with you today, and I want to get the opinion of everyone in the chat as well. And please do share this on Twitter as well. So the first thing is, and I say this to Hugh, and I say this to people in the chat: parents' evenings. Do we need them? How do we feel about parents' evenings? Are they the best use of our time? Do they have a benefit? Are they a net win for us? What do you think, Hugh? Um, well, we ha I have been sort of talking about this because um, we had a year 13 um, one recently. I think it was year 13, yeah. And we'd had a year 12 with the same group back in March, April time. So there hasn't been a substantial change in in anything really between those two periods have been a long summer holiday of course but um i don't know I, I kind of feel like sometimes it's a way of offering praise that you've already been giving to mm -hmm. a student on a regular basis within the context of the classroom which their parents aren't necessarily aware of because that student hasn't maybe gone back and told the parent about how they've been doing mm -hmm. um or it might be one of those things where you end up reinforcing a point that you might have otherwise made say in an email or a phone call on a friday afternoon where you're going, right, I'm going to make six positive phone calls and two phone calls that maybe aren't so positive, but still kind of reinforcing a positive message so that the student doesn't feel completely downhearted. So they're almost, they're almost like a distilled version of that longer telephone conversation you might have where you're mm. praising or, or perhaps saying that they haven't been doing as well. I question their validity, but we still do them like we do a lot of things in schools because it's just what we've always done. Um, I think that Having it online, which we've been doing now since sort of the end of, well, early early 2021, is much better because you actually do get through them. You don't get that thing where somebody, the parents start suddenly wanting to have a conversation and you've been there with them for 15 minutes rather than the five or 10 you're allowed. Hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of ambivalent, I think. That's where I stand. Sorry. <laughs> well... It's interesting because we've got Lucy saying in the chat, in my school, yes, but really only a face-to-face, -face, really high levels of EAL and much harder to communicate from remote. It's all phone calls for us. And Carolina said that she thinks they don't have very much impact on attainment. 
And it's also, and this is a really good point, hard to measure the impact they might have. Um, And that is part of the thing, isn't it? Is how do you measure the impact? I suppose you could do it through um, parent and student voice. You know, you could ask them what they think. But a lot of the time, people just accept that things are the way they are. I was at this parents' evening. It wasn't a bad experience. Therefore, it was fine. Therefore, I'm pro parents evenings, you know, yeah. sometimes pro is just not anti, isn't it? I know. Yeah. Um, I think that, I mean, I suppose it, it can be, it can be good to receive some feedback from the parent on maybe how you're doing personally, but that's not what you do it for. You do it more to encourage the student. Um, but I find that, I don't know, I just find that the interactions you have with students within the classroom, and that's what Carolina's talking about in her message I can see mm. in front of me, is that the praise that you give in the moment, you know, that whole kind of thing about, remember the old verbal feedback stamps, which everyone jokes yeah. about. But actually, it's the verbal feedback you give that, that that is actually, that's the joy in the classroom. That's the bit where the, yeah. student, yeah. the students' eyes light up because you've said that they've done, well, they've said something really, really well. And, you know, you're kind of capturing that thought for a moment before it disappears into the ether. And maybe it doesn't disappear, but it's, but then maybe by praising it, it secures that thought and makes it concrete within that young person. And then they, they use that later on. And I guess, so, you know, so I think within the, within the framework of a, of a parent's evening, whether that's in person or not, it can be, it can be a bit stifling. It can be a bit, you're, you're working to time so much. There's no, you're kind of constrained in some respects. So mm-hmm. I think it, and there's no way around that because of the directed time business, which I've never really understood because they say we have this many hours a year. And we all know that, well, I know that I've always done more hours than the, than the one, two, six, it's five. It's Kafkaesque, isn't it? It's, it's, it, yeah, it doesn't make any sense, um, directed right. time. It's, it's like we're made to do more things because yeah. we have to do those things legally, but we do more than those. It's bizarre, I know. It's, it's one of the strange quirks of the job. Again, that we just sort of... Um, accept i'm just going to go into the chat some really really great engagement in the chat from everybody um does measurement of impact matter um why wouldn't it toby or why would well why wouldn't it matter isn't that all we always do is uh don't we always measure the impact of something otherwise how we how should we know whether we should do it or not so i'd love to see what you think um and toby also says it's all about uh relationships and human connection that seems to be what you're saying Hugh isn't it is it's it's that verbal praise that matters and I agree with you because I think those moments in the classroom the face-to-face moments where I look a child in the eye and go you see that bit of work you've done that's the best bit of work you've done that that the way you've pulled apart the different levels of that text that's superb Mm. that's above Mm. and beyond what I expected and I'm so Mm. proud of you like this I've had students been moved to tears by that before i remember in my nqt year i really specifically praised a really quiet hard-working student and they cried and i said why are you crying and they said no one's ever said that to me before and we've all we've all got stories like this haven't we i'm not unique you know Um, i think it's that it's that funny thing i mean i just had to deal as a tutor today with a student coming to me and saying i don't like this teacher how can i how can you prevent me from going to her classroom i just looked at her just threw my hands up and said sorry i can't help you there you know Mm -hmm. just Mm -hmm. as your teacher and i was even speaking to my wife before i came on air and saying that you know with teachers you kind of have and she was discussing briefly with me she said you know i had teachers at school where i was just fairly indifferent they were okay they were neither good neither bad you had teachers that 
and it's that you like or not. And it, it seems that with students, they either hate them or they love them, and there doesn't seem to be much in between. But um, mm. um, I, yeah, I, I think I, I do like, and I, this is the part of being a teacher that I do and relish the most in some respects. And it's been difficult in the last year and a half because of having to wear masks and having to be in bubbles and so on and so on. But, you know, it's nice. It's, it's lovely to have moments like you describe where you actually speak directly to a student in front mm. of other students and you tell them how well they've done and even a thought they just had and the way in which they've mm. expressed it in class. And uh, I often I often might clap a student and get other students to clap. And that's quite nice. that's a lovely thing to do. But again, it's a spot. It's, it's never, never planned. And a lot, a lot of things you say are never planned. And that's why I always, I mean, again, this is a very, very, very brief digression. When I read about scripted lessons, I always kind of go, Ugh! you know, because um, even when I was a lawyer uh, and I used to go into court, I would have my notes and then I would go through the notes. And when I was making my application for bail or my sentencing uh, remarks or whatever it might be, trying to keep somebody out of prison, I'd have my notes, but I'd know that I needed to say in a certain way. And I would just go riff off and go off and maybe not on a tangent, but I would, I would, kind of reveal i suppose my if i can say that enthusiasm or passion for on behalf of my client because that was my job that's what i was getting paid my paltry legal aid fee for but um when you're in a, when you're in a classroom situation i think it's really important and you've, you've highlighted that as well just by what you said to let students know that they are valued and that what they say is valued i really think that's important i think i agree with you and i think what you said about scripted lessons is that because I want to think about what education is going to become. Now, yeah. on the one hand, we could say that education will become more and more scripted, prescriptive. It will become more about content that can be delivered by anyone. Yeah. And actually, yeah. the teacher's personality doesn't matter a jot. Yeah. We And we're yeah. starting to see... Well, well, I say we're starting to. We are seeing that in a lot of schools, aren't we? That yeah. homogenisation... The other way it could go, the other extreme, is that we actually have a, a vault fast and we end up being much more individual. You've got this, again, this very prog trad kind mm. of thing, haven't you? An extreme prog and extreme trad. Um, which way do you think it's going to go, Hugh? I've, it's funny because I've, I've seen a lot of these comments about prog and trad. And to be honest, I don't know whether I fit into any category. And that's no, not, that's not I, 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 don't, I don't like to be pigeonhole in such a way and and that's um i'm just thinking about one of the, the later questions you wrote down you were thinking of uh, going through with me today and and uh you know this idea of you know, what it's like reading through eddie twitter I, I find i have to ignore a lot of it because it just um angers me somewhat but anyway mm. we'll come, I mean, we won't come to that at this time but um i mean i don't know because it because my school is now part of a trust mm. and we are we have um centrally planned lessons done by uh some members of the department um, and I plan mostly for my key stage five classes because uh, I'm the only one who teaches them along with a colleague and we share the, we share the text and that's how it is and you know I've contributed over the over time to kind of the original schemes of work and such but we have a, a suite of lessons whatever you want to call it um, they have their advantages and I think it, it does I think the, the point of doing it is, is and I think this is because we want to make sure that all students get the same deal that's the rest, that's the issue, and I think there was there was an issue when I first started teaching at my current school and my previous school where you were kind of everyone was planning the same lesson but in different ways using different resources, mm. and so students were not getting the same deal. So I can understand about that kind of baseline aspect to it where it's important that everyone has the same knowledge. Yep, mm. but at the same time, 
And this is where in A-level, there's a little bit more flexibility, a little bit more uh, wiggle room, I guess, um, is that I think it's important to be able to just uh, kind of, yeah, to be able to show your passion more, I guess, for your subject. And I think there are ways of doing that because obviously if you have, if you have the subject knowledge and you're given knowledge to teach, then you can bring in, and you mentioned analogy, mm-hmm. anecdotes, you can use those things and you can bring that bring that alongside it so that that kind of piques the interest of the students so i don't think it's a i think it's i think it's a good method but i don't know what's 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 right or wrong about this i mean when i think back to how i was taught many moons ago um i was i'm you know i think back to my english teachers i think back to my spanish teacher who threw chairs around the room and threw his arms around and he was inspirational and it, within the space of 12 months i got an a in spanish from a spanish gcse one of only two a's i got at GCSE. I wasn't a good examinee, but when it came to languages, I was able to do it. And then I think of my English teachers, and you know, we, we had a text in front of us, we read it, we talked about it. That's what we did. And then when they gave us an essay, they just gave us an essay title. There was no, here's your paragraph structure, none of that stuff, which is what we do now. We teach paragraph structures from year seven all the way through to year 11. Yeah. And then when yeah. we get to, then we get, when we get to T stage five, we kind of let them, uh, let them go free a little bit more, but we still give them this is how you need to approach the question. I think that I think the most important part of teaching any subject, particularly English, is the question, the statement. Just talk about that. How do we um, how do we approach that? And that's what I always say to students: refer back to the question. Yes. Refer back yes. Question, link back. Link back. Link back. And, and simplifying. Yeah. Exactly. As well, I think yeah. one of the things we do. I think maybe a bit wrong perhaps in English is that we overcomplicate it and we need to strip yeah. everything back. I think a lot of the time mm. and censor the text, don't we? And, and ask questions in the text yeah. and that's it. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, like I said, when I was taught, I, what I remember most clearly was, and I said this to my level students, you know, we had a book, we were teaching whatever we were, we were reading. I don't know, Edith Wharton or something like that. Uh, Willa Carther, I remember those books. And then they would just be given almost a quotation. Here's a quotation, go off and write an essay. And you'd go off and you'd write four or five pages in your hardback notebook. And then your teacher would give you about half a page of feedback. Mm. And it'd be lovely, you know. Um, but nowadays we do whole class feedback. We do ticks and crosses and so on and so on. And I always try, even when it's just a, you know, a piece of work, I always try and personalize it and say mm. something to that student about what they've done well. Um, and obviously, you know, give them the usual, this is how, this is where you might need to improve and so on and so on. But try and personalise things. I think that's what makes teaching for the, for the teacher more interesting and hopefully for the pupil going back to the point you're making. But in terms of how things might change, I really don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have the answer to that. Um, you know, yeah. whether, whether, we should, as you, whether we should kind of uh, defund schools or whether we should, um, I just, I, I, I don't know because it's a system that's been around for, gosh, I don't know, two, three hundred years. I'm not sure. Uh, as far back as Dickens and, and then some, um, so I don't, I don't know what the answer is. Again, so again, I can't say definitively what's what, what to do there. Really. And this is and this is what I keep coming up against, and this is why I'm I'm really determined to keep kind of picking away at different strands. And just I think the most important thing um, is a conversation continuing. continuing. And I think and yeah. I think rather, rather than, than just, just accept things. We have to remember to um, to question them. And the act of questioning is not an act of disobedience. The act of questioning is, are we sure? Because there are yeah. so many times, I think, throughout history where we have been certain. We have gone, nope, that's axiomatic. 
we don't need to question that anymore. We've sorted that out. We've figured that out. And then the geniuses have always been the ones that have questioned the things that we never thought we should even bother questioning. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think, I think that's really key. I think questioning... So, sorry. That's no, right. I think questioning pushes things forward as well. If you are constantly questioning and looking for an original way of approaching a text, an idea, um, a thought, a philosophical uh, treatise or whatever, then that's that's what that's what humans are here for. That's why we're sentient beings. That's why we need to actually, uh, you know, have these discussions, whether it be online or in person. And the, the, the classroom is a good place in which to do that. And that's why I think more more schools should teach philosophy. Um, I'm sure a lot do. But I mean, it's a subject I'd like to teach, even though I've never actually studied it. But I feel like I could teach it because it's I think it's it, it's what it's it's about life experience, isn't it? It's about actually if you're a thinker, then I think you can do that sort of thing. Mm, absolutely. And you mentioned uh, you keep mentioning things I want to talk about. Um, the classroom itself as as a paradigm. Um, when we come back after the break, I'm going to go on a break in just a moment. Um, but I want to talk about the classroom. Um, because I think that this is somewhere where even though we don't have the answers, we can all, as that's our home, think about ways the classroom of the future might be different. So rather than thinking too much about the establishment, which is something so out of our purview, thinking about the classroom might be a helpful way to get us there. Before I do, I really liked the uh, conversation that's going on um, to go back to the chat um, about whether or not we should measure nebulous concepts. And I find it really interesting that Toby as a scientist is saying, we don't need to measure everything. And yet this flies in the face of current educational discourse when if you can't measure it, it's pointless. You know, you know, that's why we don't really talk about learning. We talk about progress because you can't measure well, learning, but you arguably yeah. can measure progress. Yeah. Yeah. So when we come back, I'm going to um, I want to get everyone's thoughts about the classroom. Um you know, and that could be anything from class sizes to class arrangement to the size of the physical room, whether we actually need classrooms or whether we should be learning in another environment. So when we come back after the news, I really want to see everybody discussing um, news. Um, please get in touch um, on Twitter um, at TTR2022. Get in touch with me as well on Twitter at Curtain Sleep. And I'll see you after the break. Thank you, everybody. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, Follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk Teachers Talk Radio is delighted to support Winston's Wish, the UK's childhood bereavement charity. Winston's Wish supports children and their families after the death of a parent or sibling. They provide emotional and practical bereavement support. Expert teams also provide online resources, specialist publications and training for professionals. Find out more about Winston's Wish and pledge your support at www.winstonswish.org. 
This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. As schools across England struggle to remain open as a result of high staff absence, many head teachers have an army of volunteers on standby. Nadim Sahawi has stated that 8.5% of teachers are in isolation currently and the Department for Education is working on plans to cope with possible absenteeism of up to 25%. Vicky Bingham, head of South Hampstead High School, said she is building an army of helpers in case of need. She tweeted, Everyone is so kind. We've even got a hierarchy for the Ghostbusters, who are you going to call moment? our cover supervisor. We had so many different types of kind offers, I decided to prioritise them for him. All volunteers will need to receive a DBS cheque to work unsupervised in schools. In Northern Ireland, a former consultant of a Belfast-based air purification system, Mark Ainsworth, has urged Stormont ministers to install air filtration systems in Northern Ireland schools. He believes the current situation of schools keeping windows open for compulsory ventilation can't go on. He told Belfast Live, My main concern is that children are sitting in freezing classrooms with their coats and hats on because they're so cold. The whole thought process early on in the pandemic was focused on keeping doors and windows open for ventilation. But you wouldn't expect someone sitting in an office to do this, and yet it's what we're asking of our children. Schools need to close the doors and windows, put the heating on, and have an air purifier at the back of each classroom. The HEPA filtration in these units can contain all the COVID virus in the air and allow children to sit in a normal classroom. Our government is still talking about this while other countries are buying these units up. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Last week I looked at some free apps for the New Year's resolution of getting fit and healthy. This week I tried a few things out and I'm ready to present my findings. First up, the free version of MyFitnessPal. There's an old age saying that 90% of fitness is in the kitchen. If you want to get in shape, you have to have the right building blocks to do so. With this in mind, I set out to log everything I ate and for good measure, I even broke out the scales to get portion sizes correct. My first discovery is that 45 grams of granola, the recommended portion size, is nothing like the portion I've been having. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that it wouldn't even fill a hamster. Realising I was eating three or four times the portion I was supposed to has made me think about my other choices, so I ate the recommended 45 grams and logged the milk. I was surprised how easy it was to find foods in the search feature, even supermarket brands. The app gave me a calorie target based on my weight, height and goal I'd chosen. As I had a coffee, I decided to map out my day and stick to it to stop myself cheating. After a week of tracking, I reviewed what I was eating. I could see where most fat and calories were coming from, allowing me to consider, I'm not promising anything, where I could make changes. The question you want me to answer is, did I lose weight? The answer is yes. 
but I think my next experiment had the most impact on that. Over the break, I managed to fall asleep watching TV and woke up to an infomercial on a DVD box set to get fit in 60 days. 60 days sounds quite quick, but thinking about it, it's practically two months. However, I did a bit of research and found a program that didn't need any weights or equipment, just floor space. I picked up the Insanity Workout series for around £35 on Amazon. My thinking being, you'd pay that for a month in a gym and I get to keep this forever. Now, I will confess, I do consider myself quite fit already. However, nothing could have prepared me for this. With Sean T, the amazing energetic coach screaming dig deeper and about 20 fitness professionals bouncing around what looked like a high school gym i've spent 45 minutes a day for the past six days jumping stretching squatting and definitely sweating being honest i was ready to tap out after the warm-up on day one i'm not gonna lie i used muscles i don't think i've ever used by day three even sitting still and lying in bed at night hurt after pushing through today on day seven a rest day the pain has subsided and i feel great i just have one word of warning if you're looking to do something like this the long walk from the car park with a load of books may be impossible in the first week read the disclaimer this is not to be taken lightly in conclusion i can't see myself keeping up my fitness pal once the novelty wears off but it has made me look at my diet a dvd fitness program for me is great finding 45 minutes is not always easy and if you want to try before you buy if you're a member of netflix or prime already there's programs on there which are already in your subscription next week we're back to tech for teaching i'm steve woods and this was two minute tech two minute tech with steve woods your tech briefing on teachers talk radio okay so we're back thank you ever so much for waiting so um we've got 20 minutes left or just under 20 minutes and so i want to think about the modern classroom um hugh you still with me uh, Excellent. Yeah, can you hear me? yeah perfect so Good. the modern classroom what do you like about it um it's it's not very it's not much well it's not much different from the classroom that i was taught in some 30 years ago um i mean just thinking in terms of what's happening at our school we're now getting these uh, clever touch screens that are coming in which will replace mm. our whiteboards and i'll have a I've, my colleagues already got one and i've kind of looked at it slightly in awe and, and, and fear and trepidation because i'm not very techy myself but she said it, it once you get used to it it works well and i suppose not having to kind of wipe things off the board i might i will miss that to some extent there's something mm. quite therapeutic about it but in terms of i mean in terms of the modern classroom i mean how i suppose i'd have to say how do i have my classroom because i know that uh, different people do different things. Some people group their, t group their students, some people have horseshoes and so on. I've always been in favour of rows because I like to be able to see everyone and I think <clears> it makes it easier. So that's the starting point for me, just having rows, having students in front of me. Um, in terms of in terms of the classroom setup, I mean, my, my desk is in the corner like most teachers, I'm sure maybe some have it in the middle, I don't know. Um, I try and step out from behind it as much as possible. But... Um, in terms of how it might re be redesigned, I mean, I know that when I was kind of training to be a teacher, there was there was people were doing you know the forest schools, and and there, there was a part of one of the schools where I did some TA work voluntarily, where they had a separate section where students kind of were te were, were were learning outside. That was for the um, uh, the um, uh, SEN students, and they would kind of learn outside in a space outside part of the school, but not forest schooling in that way. And that was quite an interesting innovation and, it, and I didn't see it really in proper use because I left and, and moved on to, to another school after that but I thought what that school was trying to do was really interesting in that way um, but I think that we're so in some ways we're and it's just kind of we're, we are constrained by the environment in which schools are built and I know mm -hmm. that uh, the last school I worked in was one of these 
if PF is one of these private investors where you had to pay a massive rent uh, just to keep the, the, the school kind of up, to, you know, to pay for the bills and so on. Well, the school I work in now is about 90 years old and I and it's kind of falling apart, but we're, we're reinvesting money into it. So I'm going to get finally get some double glazed windows. I've had a, a, th- a, th- a thin skin window since I've been teaching there for the last oh, four years. It's very cold at times. And I, I hate to tell students to take their jackets off. But mm. um, in, in terms of it, I think I, it's because I, I just look at, I look at, you know, I, I like the fact I've now got my classroom back. I didn't like sh- shuttling between classrooms during mm. COVID. That was really hard. I found that quite dispiriting, quite uh, just, yeah, it just really drained me. Um, now I feel like I have ownership. I like having that space, and particularly because it's also my tutor room as well. So it's I'm there for the whole day from eight thirty through to you know, three thirty and beyond. Um, and I, 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 as a teacher, I like having that space. But in terms of how it might evolve and how it might change, I really don't know what you could do to to it apart from maybe occasionally going outside and having those you know outdoor lessons where you go out and read a bit of Shakespeare or a bit of poetry when the weather's lovely. Or maybe not even when even when it's not lovely. When I have done that, and I have done that a few times last year when we were allowed to, everyone kind of looked at me in astonishment, like, "Why would you do that?" And I thought, "Well, why wouldn't you?" So, yeah, kind of... it's it's funny, isn't it? Because we've become so used to the paradigm, we don't really know what the um, the, the um, alternatives could be. Um, yeah. What I think is interesting is just to bring Toby's points in. He says he's hoping to chat with Ed on our show about um, Alan de Botton and School of Life yeah. ethos. And he says, um, shifting what we teach to have a greater em- emphasis on understanding ourselves, emotions, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um, rather than just fixating on knowledge. Um, mm. And I think that's really interesting coming from a science teacher. And we know that Toby is no ordinary science teacher, um, if there is such a thing. Um, But I think what's interesting about this is that it's all about creativity. And I think the current classroom paradigm, it very much favours knowledge-based teaching, doesn't it? It very much favours teacher at the front, information is projected one way and then student responses are projecting the other way it's very much this kind of one way two way thing um yeah and and i think the thing is increasingly what i've been reading about and hearing about is this idea of post-human education where things need to be a lot more collaborative and generative and i see a lot of this from dialedum on twitter um talking about how in the classroom shouldn't be about the teacher is teaching students how to be the best kind of human and instead it should be more about a generative um, environment where we can um, come to knowledge together and understand that the answers aren't fixed because one of the things I think we have in our very humanist society are society based around human exceptionalism is that there is a terminal goal there is like an ultimate human you're supposed to be like you need to grow up to become a good adult and you need to have all of those external signifiers that society says um, are tantamount to success yeah and and the thing is with that is that is that necessarily the healthiest way to live? I've, I've written recently about how one of the curses of our society is it tells us that we've got to keep making progress. We should be at this point by this time. There's always yeah. a terminal goal. 
and religions yeah. based around this as well. But what if it's just cycles? You know, mm. what if that's not how we're best served as people? Do you see what I mean? Yeah, no, I like the idea of cycles and um, I like the idea of gener uh, generating knowledge. But I guess th there's potentially for that crossover into let the students discover the knowledge for themselves. And I think to some extent <laughs> they need some, and I say that they, that, that they need and often want actually direction. Um, and, you know, putting it down to a really basic level, you know, I, I, I had taught a year seven group today and I asked them to just do a little bit of writing uh, about characters, Gothic characters and what they might be thinking. We looked at first, second and third person narrator. We give them <laughs> definitions, explained it to them. Uh, I raved about the fact that the U from Bright Lights Big City is just an amazing way of doing a narration. And, mm. you know, I think some of them actually attempted that, which is wonderful. But, um, you know, I had, but then I had two or three hands went up and they said, I just don't understand. And I said, but I've explained it to you three or four times. You've written down. And I said, okay, so let's do, do it again. And you realize that you have to sometimes, you know, for certain students require that additional input. And I think it's all very well, this, this kind of like this paradigm, as you say, of say group work, where, oh, let's, let's get all together in a group and we can, I've tried group work and maybe it's because I'm not good at teaching group work, but when I have tried it, it's never worked for me. Me neither, um, me neither. No, I, I don't know. I'm sure there are teachers who are amazing at it, okay? But I've tried it and it fills me with dread. And whenever I've tried it, I find myself just spending the whole time trying to check on to make sure that everyone within the group is doing something. And whenever I've tried it, it just never quite works. And um, that's why I tend, so I suppose, that means I might be more of a trad, even though I don't think I am any kind of ad additional this or whatever. Um, I just want to teach the text and I want to hopefully, you know, inspire the students to want to read more outside and want to get invested in what we're talking about. So I think there has to be a, a minimum amount of knowledge that's imparted. And then you, the students, to some extent, need to have agency and autonomy. And in order for them to have those two things, they need to have something that they know in the first place, don't they? That's a question. I'm, it's kind of my rhetorical question, really. Mm. Yes, this is true. I think it's interesting what's coming in the chat is that um, when we talk about the future of education, um, a lot of our comments seem to be to hold things roughly as they are. So, and this is this problem with imagining the future is that it hasn't happened yet. But like Carolina saying, I hate group work. I hated it as a pupil too. See, I loved group work, but only because I didn't really do any work at school. And I'm not trying to paint myself as a uh, as a bad boy, but I have real problems with attention. So I'm uh, still waiting diagnosis for ADHD, but I, I wasn't particularly disruptive. I just used to zone out. Like if we were having a discussion though, yep. then... I could I could get stuck in. Um, yeah. If I was doing a piece of writing, I'd get stuck in. But if I had to sit and listen, you could forget about it. Like I wasn't go I wasn't going to do that. But I would go home and I would read the texts and I would do my own thinking and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, I liked it when I was in a subject I didn't like. Oh yeah, I love group work in maths. It's brilliant. Um, but, but 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 this is the thing is that if I think about knowledge, and if I think about I don't I'm not convinced anyone's taught me knowledge i've taught myself and by taught myself i mean i have done it of my own volition if that makes sense yeah, so i've learned no, so I, much I, more as an adult do you know what i mean no i do agree with you and i think that you know if i think back to when i was a student i mean something sparks you so i was i was super fortunate when i was in my lower sixth form i was privately educated i mean i'm, I'm saying that just so it's out there i mean I, people probably know but that wasn't my choice um and i i hated aspects of it 
deeply hated aspects of it, still do. But what I will say is that, you know, there was, there was a few things that I think probably turned me into the person I am now. So, for example, I this it feels crazy now thinking back on it. When I was 16 years old, I was given the opportunity. I don't know quite know how it worked, but one of our English teachers just did half, like one half term. It might have been a whole term for all I can remember of just a, a course on Francois Truffaut films. And you kind of go, what? Can you think about <laughs> that happening nowadays? But you know what? I'm sure that that inspired me to become the film obsessive that I am now. And I have a huge desire, if I can, to teach film studies in the future at some point. But that's just a, that's a little spark. So that, that led to a flame, and that flame's still burning in that respect. So, you know, I think that that was the school's choice to do that, okay? Um, and I know, you know, having taught certain students over the last few years, you know, you get those end-of-year presents and you get the odd one who kind of gives you a book or you've recommended a book to them or you've sent a book list out via email and they come back to you and go, oh, I love that book, sir. Mm. And you go, wow, that's amazing. So it's those, and I, I guess we're going a little piece to it, but it's, it's those, and it goes back to the idea of, you know, what is it, what, why, why do we teach in the first place? And I think that it's for those little moments where you do, or you are able to inspire a student and again that one like you referred to the one who's very quiet and you said something to them and then it, it brought them to tears because no one had ever said that to them before mm. and I think it's the things you do without realizing you do stuff you say stuff you just are yourself and that actually can be inspiration enough and that's why I think that still having a, a human being in a classroom surrounded by other younger human beings and interacting and having those relationships which are kind of constantly evolving and, you know, the relationships where one day you can be praising a student and the next day you can be telling them off because of the way they're behaving, but you can still continue from the same spot the next day. That's really important. Mm. And it's a quite unique environment. I'm not sure whether it's a completely perfect environment, but then no environment is. Is an office environment imperfect? That, that could generate another discussion because offices can be very toxic and, and mm. that sort of thing. So... I don't think anything better has been, been developed yet, but it's just about how it might develop, might, might evolve into something different. But it's interesting to see, to read some of the, especially the one I think Lucy said earlier, I've just got my phone open here about the way she had these open plan classrooms, which mm. sounds like a nightmare. Yes, that's awful, isn't it? About poetry in one and then someone's, you know, making loads of noise in the other one. Just yeah, my colleagues hate me with the door shut. Because I make a lot of noise. Um, I, yeah. I, my voice carries. Um, oh, right. I'm just physically loud and mm. yeah uh, and, and i just don't shut up um i think it's interesting you mentioned about the teacher with uh, the francois truffaut films and the inspiration and i just want to uh, close off the show just by thinking about the nature of the teacher and that teacher student relationship in terms of what it's like now because there's a lot of mythology around inspirational teachers isn't there and teacher mm. archetypes and i think the relationship between the teacher and the students quite interesting because it is um, a hierarchical relationship, isn't it? Um, you know, mm. we are positioned above them in, in the classroom hierarchy, aren't we? Yeah. And we have a certain level of power. The thing is, the more I look into hierarchies, the, the more again, and I did a show on hierarchies uh, a few weeks ago, the more again I... I end up hitting again all sorts of walls. Um, I really want clear answers. I mm. find none. And then I realise that that's why I became an English teacher. Um, mm. But for example, one of the things that I've um, I've read is uh, was this, um, which was a piece that was anti-hierarchy. And it says this, 
our education system is geared towards turning children into good citizens and good workers, not into informed decision makers or people with any knowledge of society beyond the tyrannical concepts of our capital democracies. Decision making wow. is, of course, to be left to the quote unquote experts and authorities, leaving the people as a whole with token choices between pre-approved options. And because we are taught that it's always been that way, we can't imagine it being any other way. What do you think that's, of that? Uh, that's very Orwellian, actually. And I, I haven't even read it before, but I have recently taught Animal Farm. Yeah. And it's interesting because I actually disagree with that. And I think it's it can be much simpler than that and go back to what I said earlier. I think that actually what, what I would want students to be like when they leave school is curious, questioning humans, mm. not humans who have already fitted themselves into a box. And this is why, you know, we're now in, I, I have, I'm a year nine tutor and we're now doing pre-options for GCSE. Mm. And today yeah. I did a PSHE lesson on transferable skills for employment. And I thought, these kids in front of me are 13, 14 years old, and I'm talking about their career already. And I find that really dispiriting, I have to say. I mean, I know that, you know, I went through the same process. You know, people mm -hmm. were talking to me when I was, I was doing, like, aptitude tests to be a lawyer, which was my original career mm -hmm. when I was 15, 16, and I was, you know, pushed down that, that road and everything. And it took me a while to find my, my true vocation, which is what I, what I now do. But, um, yeah, I just I, – I, I wouldn't want students to be – leaving school as fully fledged members of society i'd want them to be still finding their true direction finding themselves for a number of years after that you know into their 20s late 20s even early 30s i don't think that people have to be fit have to fit into boxes but i think that in school you know we always say and we i can say myself we are preparing you for life outside school but life outside school doesn't have to mean you have to get a job as soon as you leave school and get on school's to that. like purgatory isn't it it's like yeah. heaven and hell are terminal yeah. destinations but purgatory is a way station it's almost like right yeah. you're going to stay here until you're ready to go to the real good place it's like yeah. it's the it's the uh the pre-party before the party you know but we yeah. we wish it to be transitory but there's a little bit of an analogy if i may to be made between that and a lot of um religious thought if you think about mm. and this is I often feel like I end up critiquing religion and I don't mean to. I did grow up Catholic. But you think about Christianity. It's all about the idea that this life is preparing you for the good bit that's coming up. And isn't mm. school a bit like um, life in the life heaven analogy? You know, school is to life as adult life is to heaven. And there's this idea. Um, Lucy's saying I had an acceptable answer about what I wanted to do as an adult to make the grown-ups stop asking. What was it, Lucy? Um, and it's and it's mad that yeah. Lucy also says, and Lucy is is, is a wonderful source of uh, fantastic one-liners, actress. actress. Yes. Um, she says, um, main point of action in the report was to talk about careers to our primary kids. Um, I saw that. I saw that in my heartbreaking, my heart. isn't it? I know. I know. So. Maybe we can agree on one thing, because I'm almost out of time. Yeah. Perhaps we can agree that the education of the future needs to be less obsessed with careers. Yes, 
and more about and going back to Hugh's wonderful comment more about curiosity and feeling I mean Hugh you know what Toby's like he is a man with a massive heart just like you are um so look this is something I want to pick up in part two next week where I have Dr K Sidebottom on and I'm going to be posing a lot of questions about some things that to be frank with you guys I don't really understand. But it's been really fascinating to have everyone today. I'd like to, I would do a round of applause, but he's not here. Um, but I'd love to say so much. Thank you so much, Hugh, for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure to finally talk to you. You've been a delightful, delightful guest, hasn't he, people? Um, we've loved having Hugh on. And I'd like to say a massive thank you to everybody in the chat just for getting involved. It really is um, helping to make this show a wonderful experience for me to have people coming in and commenting. Um Please, please, please tune in for Toby, um, Ed, and presumably a, Luke, a ukulele and maybe a naughty drink or two. Um, at 10 o'clock, isn't it, Toby? Um, you'll be doing the late show. It's always after my bedtime, Toby. Um, but yes, once again, we have to log off now. But thank, thank you all you. so much for coming along. I'll see you all next week. Um, get in touch at TTR2022 with me at Curtain Sleep. Hugh, what's your Twitter handle? Oh, it's at Hugs United 01. At Hugs United 01. Please follow Hugh if you don't already, but of course you do because he's brilliant. Um, <laughs> and yeah, please do uh, check out my website as well, alexdavidbright.com, if you want to read stuff that I wrote and Hugh's blog as well. What's your blog called, Hugh? Uh, oh, Reflection Eternal. Um, it's after a, it's after a Mos Def song, as it would of have to it be. Is. Of course yeah. it is. Right. For me and Hugh, thank you all so much. I'm going to play the closing jingle. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.